Welcome to Sundays at Grace, the podcast ministry of Robinson Grace Church in Grand Haven, Michigan. I'm Pastor Bill. Merry Christmas to all of you out there. We're starting to celebrate Christmas at Robinson Grace. In fact, I'm starting a brand new Christmas series called Waiting on Christmas. The idea being is that we just can't wait for Christmas to get here. We wait on Christmas all year long. We have Christmas in July. We have, you know, what, uh, 90 days of Christmas music, all kinds of new Christmas movies. And of course, children can't wait for Christmas morning to open all their presents. It's that time of year. Hey, if you go to MyRGC.com, you can download handout notes to go with this message. And if you so choose, you can donate to the ministry of Robinson Grace by clicking on the link there. Well, I'm so glad you tuned in. In this series of messages, we're going to look at three different babies that all kind of parallel the baby Jesus. There are just some similarities in them. And uh, this first baby we're going to look at today is the baby Moses, who was born to be a deliverer, just as Jesus was born to be our deliverer. I think you'll find the message very, very encouraging. So let's get right to it. Born to deliver his people. And once again, have an awesome Christmas. And uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. dark and the world is a cruel place. Far from the promises that God gave to Abraham and the Jewish people um, uh, living under Roman rule and even more so Roman oppression. Injustice, excessive taxation, hostility and fear are the daily realities for the Jewish people. And by the way, my clicker's over by you, I believe, Dan. I just thought about that. But that's the reality for the Jewish people. It's a, a world of injustice, excessive taxation, hostility, and fear. It's been close to 400 years since God has last spoken to his people, the end of the book of Malachi. The, this, these are known as the 400 years of silence. We don't know for sure if God communicated in ways that aren't recorded in Scripture, but there's 400 years of silence between the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew, and just take note of that in the back of your mind, those 400 years. Um, but the reality is, this is the world that, that, that exists, and these are the Israelite people who are longing and waiting for a promised Messiah, a deliverer. If you back up 2,000 years in your Bible from the book of Matthew and from when Christ comes here, you come to a man named Abraham and God picked Abraham out and made a covenant with Abraham and gave him the promise that one day a Messiah would come and uh, they've been waiting for this promise now for 2,000 years, this deliverer. If you back up uh, actually 2,000 years from Abraham or 4,000 years from Jesus, you end up with Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, if you remember the first two people God created, they're in the Garden of Eden. They're in the original promised land. And of course, they commit the great sin that plunges the whole world into darkness and into despair. And even back then, God came along and God said, you know what, uh, one day I will send you a a redeemer, a rescuer, a deliverer. And so for 4,000 years, the world has been waiting. Israel in particular is waiting for a Messiah, a mighty warrior king that would put David to shame, a deliverer who would lead them out of their bondage and oppression and bring the fulfillment of all that God had promised for them. And so there are many people in this day and age that are indeed waiting. They're waiting for a Messiah to come as they've endured these last 400 years 
of silence. One such man that we can take note of is uh, in the book of Luke chapter 2. We see this man uh, named Simeon. Here's Israel waiting, longing for a Messiah to come. And Simeon is one of those righteous believers that is just believing that one day God will send a Savior. Here's what it says in Luke 2.25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so, of course, Jesus comes into the temple here and Simeon encounters him in the temple after his birth and, Tim, and Simeon is overjoyed and says, hey now, I can, hey, now I can die. Now I can die. I'm an old man. I'm a tired old man and now I can die because I have seen the Lord's salvation. The reality is we see this world waiting waiting for a Messiah, a Deliverer, a Redeemer. I want to start a Christmas series this morning that will carry us through December, and we're going to talk about this very issue, this very basic reality of how we're always waiting for Christmas. We really are. We're always waiting as a society today. We, wait, we can't wait for Christmas. In fact, someone came up with the idea of Christmas in July because, you know, it's just too long to wait 365 days until Christmas. We need that gentle reminder in the middle of the hot, squelching summer sun. You'll even see these memes start popping up on Facebook days after Christmas. You maybe saw them last year where it says 358 days till Christmas. Because there's something this world is drawn to at Christmas. Now I wonder this morning, how would you define Christmas? If I asked you this story, Christmas is a, if I asked you this question, Christmas is a season of what? What would you fill in the blank? It is a season of love and peace and joy and hope and giving and family and light and tradition and expectations. And I'm sure there's some words I've missed. But you know, there is one word that should go on that blank, and we probably wouldn't put that word there, but by the end of the message, I'll tell you the best word to put in that blank. Christmas is a season of, and I'll give you the one word at the end of the message today that I think best answers that question that probably doesn't necessarily instinctively cross through our mind. The reality is ever since creation, ever since Adam and Eve, ever since they plunged this world into darkness and despair, this world has been longing, has been waiting for a Messiah to come. One of the things that we learn in Christmas, we, we learn one of the names of Jesus. We just sang about his beautiful name. But the reality is, oh, there they all are, and I forgot to click my button. I Get a little behind sometimes. But here, here we are when we, when we think about what it says here in Matthew one twenty three. We get one of these incredible names of Jesus. Jesus is God with us. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And God is indeed with us. And Christ came. Jesus came. To be God in the flesh, God living on the earth with us. And yet the reality is, is that Jesus also came to reveal the Father to us. It, it, he is God with us and he is yet the, the God revealed to us, the Father revealed to us. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The closest anyone came to seeing God was when Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock and he saw the backside of God because God said that's all you can withstand and, and still live. Isaiah kind of got a glimpse of God and 
he thought he was going to die. No one has ever seen God. But Jesus came and revealed him. I love this passage in Hebrews. We're doing Hebrews right now in Sunday school. And here it is in Hebrews. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen God the Father. That is the reality. What I want us to see this morning, what we're going to do and kind of throughout this series a little bit, is we're going to actually go back and we're going to see that while Jesus reveals God to us, the reality is Jesus reveals God to us even in the Old Testament. And there are some snapshots of Jesus. We call them types of Christ if you look back into the Old Testament. And we're going to see uh, at least three babies, two of them are in the Old Testament in this series, three babies that kind of remind us of the baby Jesus, which of course reminds us of God the Father. We're going to introduce these three babies, one of them this morning. But here is today's, simply today's big idea. Jesus is the only answer to a world of oppression and injustice. To a world of oppression and injustice, Jesus is the only way. There's not a political solution. There's not a political leader. There's not a form of government. There is nothing that can solve the issues of oppression and injustice in the world today except Jesus Christ. And one day, the government will set on his shoulders. One day, he will rule in uh, Jerusalem over uh, Israel and in essence over the world and he will be the king that can deal with the suppression and injustice and even in our life today even in our society today what the world needs is they need Christ they really do Let's start this morning in the book of Exodus. Uh, Okay, here's the deal. We're in the book of Exodus chapter 1. 400 years before where we're at right here in Exodus chapter 1. Remember that 400 years of silence from Malachi until Matthew. Well, it's kind of similar here. There's been about 400 years since Joseph went down into Egypt, if you remember the story. And we'll start right here. Uh, This is speaking about the conditions of, for Israel at this time. And here's what it says, Exodus 1.8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And so Joseph had brought his whole family down when there was a great famine in the land and Joseph and all of the Israelites ended up in Egypt. And they've been there for 400 years. And now 400 years, there's a new king, a new sheriff in town who doesn't have these great warm relationships with the Israelite people. He doesn't know their story And now he is actually threatened by them. Here's what it says. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal with shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Chapter 1, verse 11. Therefore they sat taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and, Ram- and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work. As slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So here's the reality. You got the situation here where the Pharaoh here, the king, is threatened by all these Jewish people. And so he's attempting to, well, he's attempting to control them by slavery and hard work and oppression. 
it's not going to work. And so things will go to bad for worse for the Israelites. It goes on in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you shall, or she shall live. Well, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them but let the male children live. And five verses later, Pharaoh comes back. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And so here's the reality. This is, look at the world that Israel's living in, the injustice, the oppression, the bondage, the slavery. They're crying out. They need a deliverer. They need someone to come and deliver them from their existence. That's the reality. That's the reality. Let's jump ahead. Let's jump ahead. We're kind of moving through the story fast here. But we jump ahead to Hebrews chapter 11. Gives us a little bit of the New Testament take out of the great hall of faith chapter. Here's some words about Moses because Moses is born. Moses is the baby that is so much like the baby Jesus. Moses is the baby born 2,000 years before baby Jesus or 1,500 years we should say before Jesus that looks much like Jesus. And here's what Hebrews 11 says, by faith Moses when he was born was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And so here Moses is born. And if you remember the story, Moses is born and his parents hide him until they can hide him no more. And then his mom takes him out and puts him in a basket and sits him in the Nile River. I don't know what her plans were, what her dreams or hopes were. Maybe that he would float entirely out of the kingdom and... and to safety and someone would find him. In, in truth, I think she was really symbolically just placing him in God's hands and saying, God, take this child. This is my son, I love him. Will you take him, will you protect him? I can protect him no more. What a great lesson for all of us to learn as we parent our kids. There's times to just give them to the Lord and say, I've done all I can do, Lord. You need to protect them. But here's the reality. She puts him in there, and if you know how the story goes, it happens, so happens that Pharaoh's daughter is walking along, and she sees the, the baby Moses floating down the Nile River, and so she rescues it and takes it home to be her own. And the story, even more wild and more amazing to the power and, and, and the uh, impossible actions of God is that she searches out to find one of the Hebrew one of the Jewish women that can come and actually nurse this baby and who do you think they come back with but Moses' very own mom. And so she gets to nurse, she gets to nurse Moses in his young years. What a great, what a great, what a great story. The story continues though. It says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. And so here's this one, Moses, who is in the kingdom but he has a greater love for the Lord and a greater love for Christ. And there comes a time when Moses begins to realize who he is. We don't know when it is. We don't know when, it, when he became to know that he was not an Egyptian but that he was a Jew. 
And he sides with the Jews and he sides with his people. And the story goes on by faith. He left Egypt and not being afraid of the anger of the king for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians when they attempted to do the same were Drowned, And there's the great story, the deliverer, Moses leading the Israelites through the Red Sea, out of bondage and out of slavery and out of the unjust world they were living in. What a great story, what a great story that this one would come and rise up and say, I'm going to identify with my people. And he encouraged the people, hey, let's, let's, let's go. And yet the people were not ready and the truth is, Moses wasn't ready either. It wasn't God's time. I'm, I'm harking back to what it says about the birth of Jesus, that, that Jesus was born at just the right time. At just the right time, Jesus was born. And at just the right time, God had Moses come back to lead the Israelites out of bondage and out of slavery. Moses was ready. He was ready to leave the palace and take the Israelites with him. And God said, no, Moses, you're really not ready. And the people are not ready and I'm not ready and it's not time. And it would be 40 years before Moses would end up having that burning bush experience and, and that big debate with God and eventually Moses would come back. He would come back to confront Pharaoh face to face. And he would come back and repeatedly, day after day, say, Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And eventually... Israel goes and they cross the Red Sea and Moses is the great deliverer. Here's the reality. The, the life of Jesus and Moses, they're so similar. There's so many parallels. Let me just run through some of these. Moses is a type of Christ whose life parallels Jesus. And just listen to some of these great comparisons. Both were born into similar conditions following 400 years of silence. And there's oppression and there's injustice and there's heartache in the land. Both were preaching, both were perceived as threats to the ruling king when the ruling king was really the threat to them and the ruling king tried to extinguish them. When both had godly parents that spared their lives. They both had godly parents who spared their lives when their lives were in danger as young children. Going kind of fast if you're filling these notes in, sorry. Both have elevated mothers and the reality is their fathers have no recorded words in Scripture. You don't hear Joseph ever say anything in Scripture, uh, not even to the angel. There's no recorded words. We hear about his actions but no words and there's no recorded words for the, for the, for the father of Moses. Both left the pleasures of glory to be a humble servant. Of course, Moses left the palace, went out, lived in the wilderness for 40 years. What a contrast. But a greater contrast is Jesus left the glory of heaven and came to the wilderness of this world as a humble servant. Both identified with the people they would deliver. Moses, it says very clearly, Moses chose to identify with the Israelite people, not with the Egyptians, but with, he found his identity in Christ. He found his identity in the Lord. And the same is true. We know that our high priest Jesus came down and identified with us. Both displayed righteous anger. Remember when Jesus went into the, into the, two, into the temple and cast out the money changers? But we see the same thing with Moses. He sees a, an Egyptian mistreating a, a fellow 
uh, Israelite and he strikes and kills him. He maybe didn't control his anger, but it was a righteous anger. It was a good anger. He's, he was standing up for what was right or wrong. And both spend a season of 40 years, 40 days in the wilderness before their mission even takes off. It's fascinating. Moses spends 40 years out in the wilderness before God calls him back to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And Jesus starts his earthly ministry spending 40 days fasting out in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And both performed miracles to prove they were sent from God the Father. They both did miraculous things. Moses did miraculous things before Pharaoh to prove that God had sent him. And both were rejected by the people they were sent to deliver. Both were rejected by the people they were sent to deliver. The, the people told Moses, no, 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 we don't want to go. And even when they're heading and they're free of Pharaoh and they're halfway to the promised land or out there in the wilderness, they complain and gripe and moan, maybe we should still be back in Israel. Amazing, amazing, amazing story. It, it certainly is. Um, something that their peers, Moses' peers never got this and Jesus' peers certainly never got this, that he came to deliver them, but not just physically, not just from physical oppression, but from spiritual oppression. There was a spiritual reality to this deliverance that was somewhat true with Moses. It was absolutely true with Jesus that there was a spiritual deliverance in what he was coming to do in his mission. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 1 and 2, and we're just going to walk through, and I'll give you briefly here, a handful of things that we see Jesus deliver us from, who, what he delivered the Israelites from back in their day, day and age. It's the same, the same world that, that, that Israel's living in here. It's very similar when Jesus comes to the earth. And the question is, what has God delivered us from? What has God delivered us from? We're going to start today. And there's that big idea again. Jesus is the only answer to a world of oppression and injustice. The only answer is Jesus. There's no other solution. It's not economic. It's not social. It's not political. There's only one answer, and that answer is Jesus. So what has he delivered us from? We start in Matthew chapter 1. Here's what it says in Matthew 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram and Ram the father of Ammonadab and Ammonadab the father of Nashon and Nashon the father of Salmon and Salmon the father of Boaz by Ruth and Boaz the father father of Obed by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of David the king and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah Bathsheba and you look at that and you think okay what can you get out of those seemingly insignificant inconsequential kind of boring verses of the family tree of Jesus what can that teach us well it can teach us this that Jesus came to deliver us from our past and it's fascinating, it really is, and even this week as I'm reading through it, I'm even struck again, I mean, I've known this and I've, I've mentioned this before, but even this week reading through his family tree, it is full of all kinds of, all kinds of characters. 
And you got Jacob in there, the great deceiver. Remember Jacob who married two women and, and had 12 boys by four different women. I mean, what a dysfunctional family that was. And 11 of the brothers or 10 of the brothers sold the one brother into slavery. Remember, that's Joseph. That's how Joseph ended up in Egypt. And then it's 400 years later that Moses comes and leads them out of bondage. That's how that all happened. And, and then you have, the, you have that name Tamar in there. Who's Tamar? Well, Judah. Judah, one of Jacob's 12 sons. Judah, yeah, commits incest with Tamar. And she gives birth to twins. And one of those twins keeps the family tree of Jesus going. And in that family tree, you've got someone in there named Rahab. Rahab was what? She was a prostitute. She hid the Jewish spies when they came to take down Jericho. And there's, there's Rahab in the family story. And there's Ruth. She's a Moabite. She married into the family tree. And there's Ruth of all people. And you get all the way down there. You get down there to King David. And, and you know, I mean, you know what King David had his problems. And of all the children King David had, guess which, guess which son keeps the family tree growing? Well, the one that he gave birth to with Bathsheba, whom he took advantage of, maybe took her against his will. Yeah, Solomon born to Bathsheba. It doesn't say Bathsheba's name in there. It says Solomon uh, born to the wife of Uriah. The family tree actually puts a big spotlight on this sin that David committed and says, yeah, that's the one. I mean, what a family tree. You think your family tree's messed up. Jesus' family tree was messed up. And yet, I got to thinking about that. That should not necessarily surprise us when we think about how messed up his family tree was. Think about this, the one who came to earth and welcomed the outcasts, the sinners, and the publicly shamed had a family tree that resembled his ministry. And the lesson is regardless of your past, God has come to deliver you from it and God can use you regardless of whatever is in your past. That's just amazing. And so I think that's really awesome to stop and think about that. The thing too, in the same time, when you look at that family tree and we look at, he used Rahab and he used Ruth and he used these, you know, and we can mention Rahab was a prostitute, but let's not downplay the tremendous faith that this woman had and how God used her and how she trusted God. What a great story. What an incredible, incredible, incredible story. Jesus as well came to deliver you from your past. Did you know that each one of us today, each one of us in this room, we put our faith and trust in Christ. You want to talk about a messed up family tree. We're all a part of his family tree. We're all his brothers and sisters. I mean, how God adopts us into the family. And we can look through the Old Testament and think, man, they got a mess. He had a messed up past. I'll tell you, he's got a messed up future. His family tree is full of messed up people. And God has put them all into God's family tree. I think it's just so amazing look at this we go on in matthew chapter 1 verse 20 joseph son of david the angel comes to joseph joseph son of david do not fear to take mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the holy spirit she will bear a son and you shall call his name jesus for he will save his people from their sins and jesus came to deliver us from our sins yeah, I didn't say these would be really hard ones or, or strange. Well, these are some of these, yeah, he came to deliver us from our sins. We know that. From our sin and from the punishment and the judgment of our sin. 
I like how one commentary penned it. Jesus didn't come to save us in our sin, but from our sin. That means that while we have been saved and while we have a heavenly future to look forward to, we also have a holy reality on this earth. What I mean is this, to be saved from sin means we have been saved from the power of sin. We have the ability to say no to sin. And yes, we should say no to sin. We've also been saved from the guilt and condemnation of sin. Just think again of all those on Jesus' family tree and their dark and checkered pasts. And the reality is we have been saved from the guilt and condemnation of sin. When the Bible says in Romans 8, 1, and I just love this verse, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And I talk about this all the time and I'm always telling you, you know, yeah, Jesus did not come to condemn you. There's no condemnation today. Let me apply this to your life in one other way today. Let me just tell you that you are free, that God has delivered you from self-condemnation. We can stop self-condemning ourselves. We can stop beating ourselves up for our past. We can stop saying I'm just not good enough because God says you are I talked a couple weeks ago about that legal contract right through the blood of Christ and the guarantee of the Holy Spirit that seals those adoption papers there's this legal contract we can bank on that legal contract we are free to stop condemning ourselves at the same time if you have persistent sin in your life remind yourself you are free from the power of that sin and as we just saw the last 10 weeks we don't want to commit that sin we don't want to engage that sin Matthew 2 the first two verses just show us oh excuse me um, Matthew 2 20 and 21 show us there that we are free from our sin we have been delivered from our sin let's go on to chapter 2 Matthew chapter 2 look at this now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king behold wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying where is he who has been born king of the Jews for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him let me tell you what Jesus came to deliver us from he came to deliver us from our status think about that from our status here come these wise men. Here come these noblemen from a far country that are somewhat important. And they travel all the way. They come after Christ has been born, after he's left the manger scene, and they make it to his home, and they come to bow down and worship him. They come, and they are humbled. I was reading again this week. It's a book my brother gave me a couple years ago, The Life and Times of the Messiah. It's a great historical commentary and account of the times of Christ. This is what I learned about the Magi that I never really understood. This is a pretty deep, one of those deep kind of reading books. There's a good chance they can be traced back to Arabia. Jewish history sufficiently attests to a large Jewish diaspora throughout the region of Arabia and Persia about that time. That means there would be much Jewish influence and worship in the area. Those who would have knowledge of the great hope of Israel. Supporting this is the fact that from 120 BC until the 6th century, the kings of Yemen professed the Jewish faith. This answers the nagging question, how did these magi from the east know about the birth of a Messiah and the prophecy of a, of a star? So history kind of paints a picture of how these men from the east could have known and understood this. Now I also learned the best case scenario for these, we, we know they're probably not kings and we, we think they're wise men, maybe astrologers. 
This book makes the case that they are probably Eastern presages with great study and knowledge. Most likely they study the stars as well as the Jewish faith. Here's what I find is fascinating. Seeing them as Eastern presages, seeing them as, um, as priests are fascinating because we learned the last couple of years that the shepherds, that come to to the manger scene. They were the priestly shepherds that took care of the lambs that were used in the temple sacrifices. And so it's really not, I mean, it just makes sense that God's going to send to to the greatest priest to ever be born. He's going to send priests to to, to confirm the birth of this priest. He's going to send the wise men that are priests. He's going to send the shepherds that are priests. And these priests are going to come and they're going to bring priestly gifts and they're going to bow down and they are going to worship the king. Think about it again though. Jesus came to deliver us from our status. He came to deliver us from our self-importance. Is there anything more exhausting in life than trying to live up to a status? Having to prove yourself to others. Worrying about your reputation. Think about it. Jesus comes to earth and he, he left behind. He left behind everything. He left behind his status. He, he left it all behind. He didn't look like a king of kings, did he? In fact, let's be honest, he didn't look like a king, period. Just as Moses left the palace and left his position of royalty, so Christ left the glory of heaven and his position of royalty. He didn't seem to worry much about his reputation while he was on earth. Think about what he did. He elevated women in his inner circle, which was really out uh, out of the culture. He dined with social outcasts. He chose the least qualified to be his followers. He let the sinners with the worst of reputations worship him. He challenged the most religious people of the day. He said some of the most offensive things like, I'm God. (laughs) Now it's important to note that Jesus never, ever sinned. He never gave sin a pass or condoned it. He never never treated sin lightly. Jesus never, think about this, um, Despite his unconcern with his reputation, Jesus never treated sin lightly. You know, you know why we know from his earthly ministry why he never treated sin lightly? Anybody know why? Because he died for it. Went to the cross and died for it. No, sin's a big deal. Sin's a huge deal. The point is this, if Jesus can humble himself, so should we. And the simplest way to humble ourselves is is a life of worship to the king of kings. Let's be honest, we live in a status-driven world today, right? How many people like my latest Facebook post? How many Facebook friends do I have? What is the status of my job? What's the status of my income or my family or my marriage? And we're driven by our status and, and we rise and fall on our status. Speaking of such, consider this in Matthew 2, 23. Jesus didn't worry about his reputation. He didn't worry about his reputation either. Okay, here's the thing. Look at Matthew uh, 2, 23. And he, and he, Joseph, went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. So Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Well, big deal. What does that mean? Well, Nazareth is like the place where the poor people lived. And if you lived in Nazareth, you would do everything you could to get your family out of Nazareth. Yeah, Nazareth was not the place to raise a child. That, that's where you would do school choice and you'd find a different school system. But if you looked on Jesus' Facebook page, it would say hometown, Nazareth. 
He didn't care about his status. He didn't care. In fact, this is really fascinating. In John chapter 1, Jesus comes and meets, uh, I think it's Andrew. Listen to what he says. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. It's Philip. And said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethesda, a city of Andrew and Peter. So Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, seriously. <laughs> the Messiah of the world's in Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Come and see. He didn't care about his status. We don't need to care about our status. There's a fine line here. See, there's a fine line here that, that exists and I know it exists and I don't always understand how we navigate it. It's the thing where, where I'm not that concerned about my reputation and, and, and Jesus hung out with the social outcast and, and the worst of sinners of his day. That's true. And yet we want to have a respectable Christian testimony today. We want to abstain from the appearance of evil. We want people to look at us and think, you know, we're not hypocrites. So how do you navigate that fine line of, yeah, I, I want to have a good Christian testimony and I don't need to worry about my reputation when I engage a sinful world. And how do you navigate that fine line? I think that's the Christ life. It's Christ in us. It's somehow Christ helps us navigate that tough kind of, kind of fine line. Just think. We have been delivered. We have been delivered from our status. Jesus came to, to deliver us. Look at Matthew 2, 3. When Herod and the, the, Herod the king heard this, the, the, the wise men come to Herod and when he heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And Jesus came to, to deliver us from our anxiety. We have a lot of anxiety in this world. We live in a world of oppression and injustice and it's a rough world and so we have a lot of anxiety. And so, of course, we can understand why Herod would be troubled and be anxious because he, Jesus is a threat to his kingdom. And so we understand that to a degree. What I'm always struck by is that it says all the people were troubled. All of Jerusalem was troubled. And I, I, I've often wrestled with that. And I think part of that is that Jesus represents a choice. I mean, there's clearly a choice here. Kind of like when Moses was on earth and Moses said, hey, we need to stand up to Pharaoh. We need to get out of here. And most of Israel said, well, time out. <laughs> no, I don't think so. And I think that's the same thing going on here with all of Israel. Because I think most of Israel knows that, that, that Herod is a vicious, a vindictive, a bloodthirsty, a violent king. And they, they're very well aware that if anyone gets associated with this new king, well, it won't be very good for them. And so I think there's a, a bit of that going on for all these Israelite people that are like, yeah, we don't need to hear about a king like that. We don't need anybody to, 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 to make waves here that could be a threat to me. And that the reality is Jesus calls us to take a stand, to take a choice between this world and between him. The reality is the peace we want to counter our fear, the joy we want to counter our sorrow, the hope we want to counter our despair, all that we're looking for, it is found in Jesus. It's found in the very one that they reject, the very one that they are troubled to hear about. We go on in Matthew 2, 6, and just remember again, Jesus is the only answer 
to a world of oppression and injustice? The only answer is Jesus. We need to choose him. We need to know he is our hope. Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the, so the, the scribes are now telling what they found in the writings of where they can find Jesus. But note that, he, he, he will shepherd my people Israel and Jesus came to deliver us from our lostness. We're all lost and we all need to be found. Jesus is the great shepherd who comes to lead the flock. He will walk with us through a world filled with landmines. He will lead us safely home. The Bible says that all we like sheep have gone astray, but that Jesus came to find the one lost sheep out of the 99. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. We're lost without Christ. I think of Israel. I think of Israel who left Egypt, but they continually rejected God. And they continually had a hard heart towards God. And they spend 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. It's like they're wandering around. They're lost in the wilderness. Although God is there trying to guide them and trying to lead them. We'll be lost if we don't know how to worship the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Matthew chapter 2, verse 9. And listening to the king, they went on their way. So the, Israel, the, the kings leave Herod now. They went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house they saw the child with mary his mother and they fell down and worshiped him then opening their treasures they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh and jesus has come to deliver us from our idols all the things that we worship that are so inferior and so insignificant to christ he has come to deliver us there's only one that is worthy of our worship. There is only one that is worthy of our praise. We may not think we have idols today because we think of an idol as being something that's made out of metal or made out of wood, right? We don't really look at, but, but what is an idol? Here's a great definition. An idol is anything we put our trust in or look to for meaning, significant, or fulfillment other than Christ. In the end, there is only one who can bring you hope, joy, and peace, and that is Christ. If we trust a bank account, an earthly possession, another person, a career, or even an ability to bring us meaning or significance or fulfillment or status, it is an idol. There's only one worthy of our worship. There's only one who can prov provide us with abundant life. There's only one that can offer us true significance and the one who knows me best is the one who loves me most and that's the one that I should worship and it takes us back to our own society and our own, own present day the world we live in today think about the idols that we worship today I can think of four common idols we worship today materialism the love of money there is hedonism the love of pleasure these are rampant today there is humanism the love of self and then atheism. What, is athe what do atheists love? Atheism, the love of the secular. They just hate it. Atheists just hate it if you pray to God. If you do anything religious, they just hate it. They love the secular. God totally removed. And we have these gods and these idols that we worship today. In fact, this is a summary of what, of what Moses left earlier. Think about this. 
Hebrews 12, 24, by, by faith Moses, when he was growing up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He found his identity in Christ and he destroyed the God or the idol of humanism. In verse 25, it says, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he destroyed the God of hedonism. And in verse 26, it says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward, and he destroyed the God of materialism. And by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He saw the invisible God and destroyed the God of atheism. Amazing. And I was thinking this year, you know, when, when you think of Christmas, it's like there's two sides to Christmas. There really is. There's the side of Christmas where we have like, Christmas starts on, right, Black Friday with kind of the materialism and the love of money. And then Christmas kind of ends on New Year's Eve, right? With the love of pleasure and hedonism. And a lot of people go and they just totally party themselves out and drink themselves into oblivion and party past midnight and they wake up the next day and their life is as empty as ever. And sandwiched in between the materialism and the hedonism, everybody longs for what? Christmas. For the hope and the joy and the peace and the faith embodied in the season of Christmas. That's what we long for. We just don't know how to find it. We, don't, we, we just don't understand how to find it. We just don't quite get it. We're always looking for Christmas. People long for it. Radio stations, what do we have now? The 90 days of Christmas music. Now Hallmark, man, they've made more movies this year than ever before. And now the other stations are competing. You could probably find 80 new Christmas movies made just for this. Everybody loves Christmas. How do we experience hope and joy and love? The only way is by coming to the manger and worshiping the one true God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Deliverer, by believing and receiving and putting our faith and trust in him. That's the only way. The only way. The gods of this world, the materialism, the hedonism, and the humanism, you can't worship them and experience a life of hope, joy, and peace. And finally, Jesus came. He's the only answer to the emptiness and the hopelessness of this world. But finally, here we go. Look at this, Matthew 2.16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Just like in the days of Moses, the king is killing all the babies. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And Jesus came to deliver us from our pain. We have a lot of pain. When you live in a world of injustice and oppression and brokenness and hopelessness and emptiness, you're going to be filled with pain. And Jesus came to deliver us from our pain. And we need to simply know that. There was a pastor who told this story. He said there was a time when he was working on his sermon and his little daughter came in and said, Daddy, can we play? He said, he said, I'm awfully sorry, sweetheart, but right now I'm in the middle of preparing this sermon. In about an hour I can play. She said, okay, daddy, in an hour we'll play. And I'm going to give you the biggest, bestest hug you ever had. 
And then she went for the door, and then she stopped at the door and turned around and came back to her dad and gave him the, oh, just the most chiropractic hard hug that broke almost every bone in his back. And he's like, honey, I thought you were going to give me a, that hug when I came to play later. And she says, I am, but I want you to know what you have to look forward to. And I think the, the birth of Christ is kind of for us today a, a hint of what we have to look forward to. I said last week, the best way to understand really what it means to be in Christ is to remind ourselves of what it was like when we were dead in Adam. And I think one of the greatest ways to really appreciate Christmas and what we have coming when Christ is going to come back again, the best way to appreciate that is to realize what it was like before Christ came the first time and what the world would have been like if Christ had not come at all. Think, think about the world today if Jesus had never been born. Think what, what, what our lives would be like. We just need to know that. While waiting in a Nazi prison cell in 1943, a few weeks before Advent, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a friend, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. Shortly after penning those words, the Nazis executed Bonhoeffer, but he was right. The door of freedom for him and for us today is still open from the outside by the coming and the second coming of Christ. And so Christ came to deliver us and to unlock that prison door and and to open it up and so we can freely walk out. We're set free, we are delivered. What we learn today, we learn that Jesus is the only answer to a world of oppression and injustice. And that Jesus, just like Moses, was born to be a deliverer. To deliver us from our past, to deliver us from our sins, to deliver us from our status, from our anxiety, from our lostness, from our idols, and from our pain. We have been delivered, we have been set free. And I would just encourage you as you go into this Christmas season, do you have any expectations for this Christmas? What are your expectations as Christmas comes? Do you have any expectations this year? Write them down, verbalize them, pray about them. Say, this is what I want this year from you, Lord, for Christmas. And then what can and has God delivered you from this Christmas? I mean, we've been delivered. What do we need to experience now? What do we need to say? I've been delivered from this. I'm free from this. And then finally, I told you, I tell you, Christmas is a season of what? Well, I'll give you the best answer for that. Christmas is a season of life. It is a baby that was born. The life of a baby was born. That's what Christmas is all about, life. And that life that will come and indwell you and indwell me and lead us through a world of injustice and oppression and bondage and pain and heartache and grief. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your life. Thank you for the birth of your son. Thank you for your deliverance. May these things we talked about today, may we see them in our own life. May we see that we've been delivered. We've been set free. May we find the hope and the joy in that reality. Bless our Christmas season as individuals, as families, and as a church. And I pray as we leave here today that you will just bring these words back to our heart throughout the week to encourage us and to empower us. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen.